Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to you today. God, that you've given us lips and mouths to, to speak your praise. God, you, you say in your gospels, if if we don't cry out, the rocks will, and so thank you for the opportunity to cry out, and Lord, just the wall of sound in this sanctuary this morning, what a, what a blessing that was to hear. Lord, thank you for the worshipers in the gymnasium. Lord, I look forward soon to where we can, we can be together and, and make that wall of sound even bigger, because Lord, you are worthy of it. You're worthy of our praise. You are a great and mighty and holy and perfect and infinite and righteous and loving God. And we have a story to tell. And we have a great friend in Jesus. And we thank you for him. We give him praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As our uh, instrumentalists and vocalists find their way to their seats, I want to ask you to find your way to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8 is where we will be this morning. And I want to say afresh, uh, good morning and welcome to North Roanoke. We have a number of guests here today, and it's always great to have guests. And so I just want to tell you our, our vision in a sentence this morning. Our, our desire at North Roanoke is to be Christ's church. We don't want to be Daniel's church or Paul's church or anybody on staff's church. We want to be the church of Christ. We want to be Christ's church, which means we want to look like the church in heaven as much as we can, right? We don't want to be just a, a bunch of white people or a bunch of brown people. We want to be just a bunch of people that God has brought together by the blood of Jesus. Red and yellow, black and white. We want to be a church in Roanoke, for Roanoke, that looks like Roanoke because that will glorify Christ. We want to be Christ's church. And we want to impact the Roanoke Valley. We don't want to talk about the Roanoke Valley we don't want to just drive through the Roanoke Valley. We want to make a positive impact in the name of King Jesus where we live. We believe he's called us to be ambassadors of the king and of the kingdom and to do good works and to share the gospel where we are. And we finally want to reach the world. We want to reach the world with the life-changing message of the gospel. We don't want it to just go in Roanoke, be bottled up in Roanoke here at 6402 Peters Creek Road. We want the nations to know that Jesus Christ has conquered the grave and that he is king and he is worthy of our worship. And as a part of being Christ's church, we believe that we need to go to the word that reveals Christ. And so we systematically work our way through the Bible and we happen to be in the book of Esther. So if it's your first time at North Roanoke today, we're so glad you're here. We're in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Esther where we see that God is a God who delivers his people. He delivers those who have faith in his promised son. Now, in this book, in chapter 7, when we close chapter 7, uh, we're hastening towards the resolution of the book. It's 10 chapters. We're in chapter 8. And in chapter 7, this enemy of the people of God named Haman is hung. And interestingly, he's hung on the very gallows that he had constructed to hang 
someone else, to, ha- to hang a Jew. And so there's this great reversal that's taking place. And Haman has been hung on his own gallows, and, and it looks like the story is hastening toward a good resolution. But the problem is, Haman had been the king's right-hand man, King Ahasuerus, king of Persia, and he had uh, weaseled his way to get an edict decreeing the death of all the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom, which would have meant the elimination of the promise of God to send a Savior through the Jewish people. So he's been hung on his own gallows, but the decree of death still hangs over the Jewish people. So in chapter 8, we're going to see how it is that the Lord will continue to work to fulfill His saving promises. And we're going to see it in a message that I've chosen to entitle, The Death of Indifference. The Death of Indifference. When you came to church this morning, as you navigated your week last week, I want to ask you for a a brief moment to consider what did you really think about? What was really on your mind? I'm concerned that in a world of COVID, in a world of political upheaval and national elections and all the things that compete for our attention, that it has become easier and easier and easier for the church of God to forget about the main thing. And the main thing is not what's on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or your Facebook feed or your Google account or any of those things. The main thing is the mission of God in the world. And I pray that what we see in Esther chapter 8 would, if there's any indifference in our heart to what really matters, that God would get the indifference out of our lives and we would leave change today for the glory of God to be a people who is not indifferent to the mission of God to save sinners by sending His Son. So let's read in verses, to begin in chapter 8, in verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord says this, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Mordecai and Esther's lives were at risk, and now suddenly everything has changed for them. But what we'll see in the verses to come is they still labor for the salvation of others. So what we need to learn from verses 1 and 2 is this. As those who enjoy salvation, we must not lose sight of the need of others for salvation. As those who are already believers in Christ, we cannot lose sight of the need for others to know Christ. The day that Haman dies, the king gives Queen Esther Haman's house. Which means everything. It's not just his house, right? It's all of his assets. All of his property. Everything that he bragged about having in chapter 6 now belongs to Esther. Uh, Until this time, somehow the relationship between Mordecai and Esther, that Mordecai is Esther's cousin and adoptive father, that had remained unknown to the king. So she lets the king in on the big secret and Mordecai just continues to rise. He was going for the gallows a day earlier. Now he is the king's right-hand man. The king prized the signet ring off the cold, dead hand of Haman, and he places it on the hand of Mordecai. And to top it all off, Mordecai now manages the estate that had belonged to his arch enemy, Haman. 
Esther owns it all, Mordecai manages it all, and I hear an echo of Genesis twenty-two seventeen in my ears as I read about the great reversal that's underway. God had promised to Abraham, do you remember? Your offspring, your seed, you're going to have a son one day who shall possess the gate of his enemies. And now, as Haman had been going out of the gate of his estate, now Mordecai manages the gate of Haman's estate. The reversal is underway. And it's depicting for us a, an even greater victory and a greater reversal that comes through Jesus Christ, the ultimate seed and offspring of Abraham, who didn't just nearly die like Mordecai, but he actually died. And he willingly laid down his life on the cross so that sin and death could be destroyed and conquered through his resurrection and that all who trust in him could have a share in this great reversal and they too could possess the gates of their enemies. They could look at death and say, where is your victory? Where is your sting? When sinners turn from sin and trust in Jesus, we get riches unimaginable, church. We get the presence of Christ, and we also get treasures on reserve in heaven. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And it is reserved through the blood of Jesus, which means no one can cancel your reservation. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, or what position you have, or what status. Nobody's going to trump the reservation that is secured through the blood of Jesus. We have great things through the blood of Christ on reserve for us in heaven. But I'm concerned that many of us live right there. And we say, I trusted Jesus, my sins are forgiven, so I'm going to hang out, occasionally go to church, do some good deeds, and then I'll show up when, in heaven one day when I die, or Jesus comes back and I get riches unimaginable with Jesus, and that's great. But God didn't leave us here to just sit around and wait on riches. He didn't leave us here to say, well, I've got everything I need, so I'm good, I'm checking out. Esther shows us the position and the posture of someone who receives great blessing and great reversal from God, and she is not content with her stuff while the lives of other people still need saving. And I, and I want to challenge you this morning, are you content to just have Jesus and, and wait on heaven while other people perish? Or do you want to see other people come to saving faith in Christ? The transformation in Esther's life is amazing. A few chapters ago, do you remember? Mordecai challenged her like, hey, you're the queen. You could probably do something about this. And she's like, not me. I'm not going to risk my life. And then finally, she goes to the to the Lord in faith, and the Lord changes her heart, and, and we see that her heart has changed because now nobody even has to tell her to go back to the king again to plead for her people. She just does it because she's no longer compelled by her personal safety and comfort and wealth and riches in this life. She is compelled by the mission of God in the world no matter what it costs her. She's become an example of Psalm 67 Verses 1 and 2, a psalm that I've urged our entire church to memorize. The first two verses tell us the reason God saves people is so that those people will tell other people that He's a Savior who's willing to save. The reason God saved you is not because He was impressed with you. It wasn't so you could have riches unimaginable. It was so that you would be an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the here and now. He wants you to take the saving faith that you have to spread it and tell others. 
in his book, The Gospel for Real Life. And if you're looking for good books other than the Bible, The Gospel for Real Life is one of the best books on discipleship and the gospel I've ever read by Jerry Bridges. He says this, We are not to be a terminus point for the gospel, but rather a way station in its progress to the ends of the earth. God intends that everyone who has embraced the gospel become a part of the great enterprise of spreading the gospel. We're all on the same team. Not just the pastor, the the associate pastor, the worship leader, the kids minister, the deacons. Do you see that word, everyone? God intends for everyone who has embraced the gospel to become a part of the enterprise of spreading the gospel. Do you believe that? Here's a question I have for us, church. How distracted have we become over the last few years or maybe the last 20 years by lesser missions? What mission is greater than that mission? There's there's simply no other mission that comes anywhere close. So let me me ask of us together today, how much does our concern for for non-Christians, for unbelievers, for the lost, how much does that motivate our calendar? How much does it motivate our praying? How much does it motivate our budgets and our giving? Church, we don't get to take it with us. When we cross into eternity, the size of our 401k is not going to matter to us. We're going to be walking on streets of gold with King Jesus. How much does the mission of God in the world that He's entrusted to us right now motivate who we are, what we do, what we believe, how we see? May God Almighty help us recapture the spirit of Esther and Mordecai in chapter 8 to become people who don't care about prestige or position or possessions. We care about the mission of God. And otherwise, we will not be distracted. Let's continue in verses 3 through 6 and see see what Esther says to the king. Then Esther spoke again to the king. And remember, she's speaking to the king uninvited. She's risking her life all over again to plead on behalf of the Jewish people. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther... Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Listen to verse 6. Can you hear her pleading? For how can I bear... To see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Church, we see in Esther a reminder that we must persistently plead for the lives of those who face an irrevocable edict of death. Her people are faced with an edict of death. She's worked her two-feast strategy. She's made a request. And Haman, the enemy, is dead, but his decree remains and the clock is ticking. So she risks her life all over again and goes to the king uninvited. And we see 
in these verses her perseverance. She hasn't gotten what she ultimately wants, so she goes again. We see her pleading and we see her passion as she speaks again to the king. She understands that Haman is like Agag of the Amalekites, hostile to the plan of God and the plan to bring a Savior to the world through the Jews. He's like the Antichrist, if you will, and now her emotion is on full display. She recognizes the decree for what it is. It is an attack on the Lord and on the Lord's mission in the world. And in verse 3, she is overwhelmed. Do you see what she does in verse 3? She fell at the king's feet. And she wept and she pleaded for Haman's twisted plot to be revoked. What's interesting to me is, is to this point, Esther, after she goes through that three-day fast, she, she, her emotions are in check. She's, she's as cool as the other side of the pillow. And then, she's got one last shot. And she lays it on the line. She risks her life all over again for the lives of others. And now she goes all in. She's vested personally and emotionally. And in verse 5, she begs the king to revoke the decree. And in verse 6, she asks, How can I bear to see the calamity or the destruction of my kindred. Church, I have a question for us in light of what we see in Esther. Do we think of lost people in this way? Do we see lost people in Do we see their eternity an eternity of suffering and separation from the loving presence of God in a place called hell, which is the just punishment for sin, do we see lost people in this way? Do we plead on their behalf? Esther has a real concern for others, and, and praise God, our king is not like Ahasuerus. Our king is the king of kings who, who died for sinners. We don't have to wonder if God hears our pleading. We know that he accepts us in Christ, and he's chosen to bring people from all nations to salvation through the prayerful pleading of his people. Do you believe that? That God brings sinners to saving faith through the prayerful pleading of His church? So I want to ask us today, church, will we be the church that goes to the feet of Jesus? And will we plead with earnestness? And will we plead with tears for those who face everlasting death for their sin? Whenever I think about evangelism and mission in the world and the plight of the lost, I think about the Apostle Paul. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? He's, he's a Jew who encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He sees the glorified Christ and suddenly the whole Old Testament finally makes sense to him. And he realizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the promises of the Old Testament. And he confesses his sin and he's gloriously changed. But there's all these Jewish people around him that he loves who are missing it. And he's so desperate for them to know Jesus. And to encounter the, the glory of God and to worship Jesus who is God, who is their saving king and they're missing it. And he says this in Romans chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. God, I know it's not possible, but if it were possible for me to be condemned forever, for them to be saved, God, I wish that could happen. 
That's how much I long for them to be saved. Are there people in your life that you can see their faces right now that you could say, God, if I can trade places with them, please save them. There ought to be for all of us people that we know God has placed us in their path and that our prayer would be, God, move heaven and earth to save them. Maybe it's your lost sister or your lost brother or your mom who treated you horribly or your grandmother who just won't listen to the pleas of the gospel. Maybe it's your cousin who grew up in church and she heard all the right things and she went through all the motions and she even got baptized, but her faith was never real. It was never personal saving faith in Christ. And she grew up and heard the arguments of the world and she went the way of the world and she's lost and undone and it vexes your spirit and it sends you to the feet of Jesus. Church, who among us will be like Esther and will see the decree of judgment and death for sin that hangs over the world? And we will go to the feet of our kind and saving King on their behalf. Who among us will plead for the lost while it is still, while we still have time and before it's too late? Of course. Esther is not pleading with King Jesus, she's pleading with King Ahasuerus. So let's, let's see how, how King Ahasuerus responds in verses 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Here's what I want you to learn from verses 7 and 8. We can confidently give our lives to the mission because our king is vested in the mission. Our king is greater than King Ahasuerus. In verse 7, King Ahasuerus basically says to Esther, Look, I gave you money and I killed your enemy. What else do you want? He's a little upset by Esther's request because he doesn't understand someone who's concerned about more than just themselves. All he cares about is himself, his needs, his wants, his preferences. And I tell you, that sort of attitude infects churches all the time. Well, we didn't sing all the songs that I wanted to sing, so I'm not coming to worship. We didn't have all the instruments that I wanted to be played, so I'm not coming to worship. And we got people who are distracted by so many things because they don't want to be united in the mission of God. They just want their preferences met all the time. It's not, it's not too much like the attitude of King Ahasuerus here. Well, I gave you what you wanted and your personal preferences are fixed and you're still concerned about people? Yes, because I'm here for the salvation of people. I'm not here for myself. In verse 8, the king does not say, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. Excuse me, but in verse 8, the king does say, at least, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In other words, I'm not going to help you out, but maybe you can help yourself. Of course, he, he reminds Esther that an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring 
cannot be revoked. In other words, it's impossible to revoke the edict of death. This is the law of the Persian Empire. Once you write an edict and seal it with the king's ring, it's, it's got to stand. And then he says this, but if you can come up with a better counter-edict, best of luck to you. May the best edict win. It's kind of like the Hunger Games. The, the indifference, what we see here is the indifference of the world represented by King Ahasuerus to what really matters in life. But church, we serve a much greater and better king. While we rightly face a decree of death for our sin, the Bible tells us the the price or the penalty for sin is death, King Jesus did not stand back and say, y'all figure it out for yourself, did he? He said, you know what? You're under a decree of death, so I will leave heaven. I will leave the glory of heaven, and I will come down, and I will take your place. So he came down, and he lived a perfect life, and he died death for our sin. And he was raised on the third day, and he wrote a new edict of life, and he signed it, and he sealed it in his own blood. And the promise to anyone who will turn from sin and trust in King Jesus is they too will be raised to life everlasting to dwell with Him forever where there will be no more sickness or sadness or death. And if that's true, do you believe that church? If that's true, then with the breath that we have left, may God not find us indifferent about spreading the message of salvation because King Jesus was not indifferent about leaving heaven in order to secure our salvation. In Esther and Mordecai's case, the king did not care too much about what was at stake. But Mordecai, as we will see, didn't really care that the king didn't care. He took the permission that he was given and he ran with it in verses 9-14. through 14. Would you read with me those verses? The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies, so the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. A lot, of, a lot of information, but I just want you to get this one point this morning. We must make known the good news of a counter-edict to all peoples everywhere. We've got a good story to tell. 
everybody's under an edict of death, King Jesus came to publish an edict of life. And everywhere that people are under death, and in every language that is spoken, in every place, in every province, they need the good news. Mordecai knows what to do with the king's signet ring, doesn't he? He doesn't sit around and go, well, I wonder what I'll do with this. He gets to work. It's like, I'm going to let these people know they can live, or they can at least defend their life. He has a counter-edict drafted and sent to every place and every people in every language where the edict of death for the Jews had already been published 70 days prior. Now, 70 days later, because Jesus is the the 70th, right? He is the 70th week. He is the temple. He's the one who brings us into the presence of God. He's the one who's crucified so that the veil can be torn, so that we can have access to to our God and King through His atoning sacrifice on our behalf. 70 days after the edict of death was sent throughout the kingdom, Mordecai sends a rival edict to all the same places and all the same people, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language. He even sends the the script to the Jews in their own heart language so that they can hear the good news of the gospel and know that they can defend themselves. And it all happens on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. In other words, both decrees... The decree giving people permission to persecute and kill the Jews and the decree giving Jews permission to defend themselves, it will happen on the same day. Mordecai ensures that an edict for the defense of life is taken to every place that an edict of death has gone. And notice that he does not hesitate to use the pagan king's authority to defend God's people. He's not like, well, separation of church and state. If you're going to give me the royal horses, I'm not going to use them. He's like, you're going to let me use the royal horses? Let's go. You're going to let me use your signet ring? All right. So he publishes at the king's expense to every place and every people and every language the good news. The good news that the people of God will be able to defend themselves. And he sends it quickly, doesn't he? The first edict just goes out with couriers. Just get the news out there. But... Mordecai wants the good news to get there as quickly as possible. So it goes on swift horses bred from the royal stud. His edict is urgent and it needs to be delivered everywhere in the known world because the annihilation of God's people would have meant the annihilation of God's promise to send His Son to save the world. In Esther, what the nations would do to the Jews would determine what happened to them. In eternity, what the nations do with Jesus, the seed and son sent through the Jews, will be what happens to them. We have a greater counter-edict to publish than Mordecai did. We don't tell people, hey, you're under the curse of death, do your best, defend yourself. What do we tell them? God came down to be your defense. He came down to take your sin and raise you up to life everlasting. Listen to what Duguid says. God put His own Son under the curse of holy war and cut Him off because of our sin. This means, church, that we, we don't fight with weapons of typical weapons of warfare, physical weapons. We instead fight with the weapons of fervent prayer, the, the truth of God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, and an empowered witness to those who now live under the curse of death. And we invite them to join God's people before it is too late.
in Persia, there were two edicts. One of death and one of defense of life. And they would be resolved on the same day. And the same is true for the ultimate edicts of death and of life. Death for sin or defense and salvation through the blood of Jesus. As Paul says in Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed. And of this He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And if everyone who does not believe on Christ is going to die, and if Christ has come as promised through the Jews to be a Savior for all nations who trust in Him, does that not mean, church, that we have a job to do? Mordecai sends out the royal racehorses. And when I think about the royal racehorses, I think about the Clydesdales. Does anybody remember the Clydesdales commercials? I, I didn't partake in what the Clydesdales were advertising, but those were some good commercials. And I love the feet of those Clydesdales, those, those massive billowing feet. And I don't know if the, the royal racehorses had feet like Clydesdales or not. But as I think about the racehorses bringing to the Jews the good news that you can defend yourself, I get the image of those Clydesdales in my mind for some reason. And, I, and then I think of what Paul says in Romans ten fifteen: How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The horses were bringing good news. You can defend yourself. You can stand up and the Messiah will come through God's people. Likewise, church, when we take the good news to lost and dying people, we've got some beautiful feet. We've got to take the good news of salvation to the nations. And when we do, we can use whatever ethical means possible to do so. Some of you might have a job and they say, hey, we want to send you to India. And you're like, I don't want to go to India. I like living in the United States. But maybe God is sending you to India to take the gospel to India. Because we spend lots of money and time and training to get people to India through the International Mission Board. Meanwhile, your company's like, hey, we can send you to India in six months. Go! And share the gospel. Many of them speak English. You can use Google Translate. You can use Zoom and social media and WhatsApp and all these tools to publish the greatest counter-edict ever. And we're publishing memes that are funny and silly, but what good are they doing? We've got more opportunity to publish the gospel than at any time in human history. Ought not the church be leveraging the resources we have to tell people that Jesus came down to erase the edict of death, be raised on the third day so that they could have life everlasting? And guess what? Whether you're doing it on Facebook or Twitter or God sends you to India or to Japan, wherever He sends you, He goes with you. Mordecai got the signet ring of King Ahasuerus. He got the authority of the king to do these things. When Jesus rose from the grave on the third day and he commissioned his disciples in his church, do you remember what he said? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, which means there's no place you go to publish the good news of the gospel where King Jesus isn't there with you in it. So why don't we tell somebody? On the day the world planned to take out the people of God, the people through whom God would send a Savior, Mordecai saw to it that they could defend their lives against an armed force of any people or province that might attack them. Those who view God's Son and His people as Haman did 
will suffer Haman's fate, which is a foreshadowing of the great day of the Lord when the edicts of death and life come to final resolution. On that great day, there will be people who hear the good news and run to Jesus, and there will be people who have not. On the great day of the Lord, the rival edicts come to a conclusion. There will be two sides. There will be those who have trusted in Jesus, and there will be those who have not. There will be no second chance. There will be no purgatory. There will be no in-between categories. You will be on the side of death everlasting or of life everlasting. And what you do with Jesus makes all the difference. But our role, church, is not one of fighting with the sword of vengeance. Instead, we fight with spiritual weapons of warfare, bringing the gospel to every tribe and tongue and language and nation and people, begging that God would take our enemies and transform them into friends through the healing, reconciling, saving power of the Holy Spirit. Church, we must hasten to tell the nations of their urgent need to worship King Jesus and join His people before it is too late. Because when it's too late, they will face God's vengeance. And there will be no more hope. So the counter edict has gone out. Let's see what happens in verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear the Jews had fallen on them. What I want you to see in verses 15 and 17 15 through 17, is that we need to be a people delighting in our King's salvation. In these final verses, we see the Jews celebrating the hope of an incredible reversal that is underway. Their salvation is not complete. The, the day uh, where these rival edicts will come to fruition has not come, but things are definitely looking up, aren't they? Well says this, Mordecai, who once tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, now appears wearing royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, from sackcloth to robes of royalty. The Jews, among whom there had recently been great mourning, now express gladness and joy. The Jews who once neither ate nor drank for three days, night or day, are now feasting and celebrating a festival and a holiday. Once it was the Jews who had every reason to be terrified. Now many peoples throughout the country professed to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. What a great reversal by our great God. And yet, as great as this reversal was, it is nothing compared to the victory that it was anticipating. The Jews we're still living in exile under a pagan king and a pagan kingdom with crazy edicts. Mordecai was wearing royal robes, but he wasn't the king. But we have a king who, though he is the king of glory, came down from heaven to be disrobed and stripped and beaten and crucified for our sins and raised on the third day. And now he pleads on behalf of all who trust him, Father, 
This is one of my people. I know that he deserves to die, but how could I bear to see his destruction for sin that I gave my life to pay for? Church, we were lost, but in Christ we're found. We were doomed to destruction, but in Christ we've been delivered. Do you believe that? And if that is true, the decree of our death was even greater, and the decree of our salvation is infinitely higher, how much more ought we be a people who are rejoicing? How much more ought we be a people who are feasting? And as we live our lives for King Jesus, may it be so that we would see people change teams. Don't you want to see people change teams? To go from lost to saved, from death to to life, not because they're afraid of us, but because as they see us worshiping Jesus and delighting in Jesus and always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us, that they would see through our joy and delight in God that they need to meet God. That they would see that God is great and greatly to be praised. Church, we have a story to tell. We have a king to serve. We have a reason to rejoice, and we have no reason to be indifferent with the gospel that our King has given to us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time in your word this morning. Thank you that you are the God of great reversal. And Lord, as I shared in the message not too long ago, I pray for the the lost faces that each of us can see this morning. God, family and friends and co-workers and colleagues, people who are far from God, Lord, I, I pray that you would rid our lives of any indifference that might be there and that you would compel us and motivate to fall at the feet of Jesus and to to plead on their behalf for their salvation and that you would loosen our lips to share the gospel. And God, there There might be some in this room, they say, the face of the lost person that I see is myself. I have not believed in this king. I have not trusted in this Jesus. And if I were to die right now, I would would die separated from God, and I would would get the just wrath of God against my sin, and and I don't want that. I want to live, and I want to worship King Jesus forever, and I want to be a part of the mission of God. Lord, if there's anyone in here that that that's their story. Lord, I pray that as we stand in just a moment and sing, that your spirit would draw them into into salvation and that they would feel a liberty to come and, and meet this pastor and pray together and rejoice in the salvation that God alone can give. Lord, however you choose to work today, I pray you would do it for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.